Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our copies of God's Word to the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 6, the title of today's message, Shouting Time. Joshua chapter 6 is likely the most famous chapter in the entire book, if for no other reason than the famous spiritual commemorating it. We all know that the walls came a-tumbling down. Well, it's here in chapter 6 that they do so. It's a great story that almost everyone is familiar with. So let's uh, remind ourselves by reading the first 21 verses of Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. The wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I tell you, Shout! Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, And the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. And then the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Then on the seventh day they they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban, and it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall be uh, into the treasury of the Lord." So the people shouted, and priests blew the trumpets, and the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and took the city. 
They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now there are some dangers involved with preaching a famous portion of the scripture such as this. One of the dangers is that everyone here almost is familiar with it. Now that's not true of every Old Testament passage. During the uh, time where we meet and greet one another, someone asked me about a lyric in one of the songs. What does that word Ebenezer mean? Do you ever wonder that? Yes, you do. <laughs> well, it's taken from something that is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 7, where Samuel at that time was leading the Lord's people, and they still had not yet defeated all the Philistines out of the Promised Land, and they were going again into battle, and the Lord gave them the victory. And so he put up a memorial stone and called it Ebenezer which means so far the Lord has helped us. He, he wanted to be reminded that every time they passed by there that the Lord had promised to help them and he had done everything he had promised to do. Remember, the Israelites had done that upon crossing over into the promised land. Remember, they, the first obstacle they came to was the Jordan River, which had overflowed its boundaries. And uh, instead of being upset, the Lord told them to just, uh, step out into the water. And they did, the priest did, and the Lord stopped up the water as it were an invisible dam, and they crossed over on dry land. But that was the first of many obstacles they would face. The next was this wicked city of Jericho that was looking right in the face. And you would think that with their zeal and enthusiasm and adrenaline, having witnessed a miracle from the Lord, they would want to attack right away, and probably many of them did. But the Lord wanted to remind them that the victory was His and not theirs. So he set them aside and he told Joshua to have all the men circumcised and they had to wait in their tent until they were healed. And last week we talked about waiting on the Lord and how important that is. And then when the time came in Joshua chapter 5, God came to Joshua, we saw last week, in the form of the commander of the Lord's armies, which I believe to be a pre-incarnate Christ. And he reminded Joshua that the victory was the Lord's and not his. And he gave him his instructions. And those instructions, we believe, are found here in the first portion of Joshua chapter 6. Now, the dangers that I was alluding to about preaching famous passages are really multitude, but I want to focus on two. The first is the danger of proof texting. Proof texting is the practice of pulling verses and quotations out of the original text, out of context, to back a point that you really want to make. Uh, this, by the way, is why we insist on preaching through entire books of the Bible here, so that the preacher doesn't just address his pet peeves all the time. Now, we were taught in seminary a, a funny story that reminds us of this. There seems to have been a young pastor who did not care for a particular hairstyle that had come in vogue in his church that the women were wearing. And so he searched frantically all over the scriptures to find a passage to preach against this particular hairstyle. Well, he searched in vain until he came to Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew 24, 17, the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples about the abomination of desolation, the Lord's wrath uh, that was from the book of Daniel. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 17. He said, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Well, the preacher realized he'd found his verse to preach against this hairstyle. He just chopped the verse to say, top not come down. <laughs> and he built a whole sermon around that text, 
which was really a proof text. It was out of context. Now, that will help you to remember why we don't do that or we shouldn't do that. The, the second is the temptation to allegorize everything, especially in the Old Testament. That is to, to see in these historical figures of the Old Testament some modern day problem or inconvenience. I'm not going to have you raise your hand because I know all of you would. How many of you have heard a sermon on David Goliath in which Goliath represents all the problems you face in your life and how God wants us to slay all the problems in our life? Well, that is an example of, of allegorizing something out of its, its context. So what I'm asking you is to pray for me as your pastor that I will not succumb to those temptations because I face them weekly in, in preparing these messages and that we'll study the scripture in context. So let's begin this morning by looking at the first six verses. And the point I want to make from these verses, really the first five, are, are the orders. These are the marching orders, the military orders that, that God gives Joshua for taking the city of Jericho. Now remember this is a walled city. And archaeologists tell us it was very fortified. It really had a double set of walls, an interior set and an exterior set. And it was thought to be impenetrable, especially by the people who built it. And this is what it says. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went in and, and, and no one came out. And so, so the point is their best defense was to just go inside like a turtle in the shell and wait for the people to leave. That is they trusted in their own ingenuity, their own ability to make the walls tight and the doors fast. We know this because they did not try to attack the Israelites even when they were in their tents recovering from the circumcision when they were vulnerable. Now they felt secure, we suspect, because they had stockpiled many months worth of foodstuffs. We know that there were natural springs inside the walls so they would have access to fresh water. And so their thought is we can wait longer than you can. The problem was, from God's perspective, is that the residents of Jericho were occupying space that belonged to God's people. This is part of the land that had been promised to Abraham and, and his descendants. And on top of that, these people worshiped false gods. Jericho was a, a center of moon god worship, we're told. And so here's what God told the people to do. He says to put the priest out front, carrying the ram's horns. And behind them are the armed soldiers, and behind the first wave of armed soldiers were to, was to be the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that the Ark represented the presence of the Lord in the camp. Inside were the Ten Commandments and relics from the 40 years of wandering, including manna from heaven that had fallen. And they were to follow the Ark from a distance with the second wave of soldiers and then the people, and they were to walk around the city one time every day. And at the end of that circuit, they would go back to their tents, get up the next morning, do the same thing. The priest would lead out, they would blow the ram's horns, the seven horns, they'd walk around the city carrying the ark, they'd go back to their tent. They did this for six straight days. And then on the seventh day, they were to walk around the city six times. And on the seventh time, the horn was to blow, and then they were to shout. So there were to be 13 circuits all together over a seven day period. They were also instructed to walk in silence. The people were not to utter a word as they walked. Now, if you've ever tried to herd Baptist, you know that's a difficult proposition. That's what they were to do. Now, this goes against all military science. 
There, there's nothing new about siege warfare. It's been going on for centuries. And so typically the, the methodology was is that you were better supplied than the city. You would wait them out. Or if you couldn't wait for that, you would build ramparts. That is, you would put uh, debris and dirt and build up till you were at the, the level of the wall and you could just breach the wall that way or to go over it with ladders, which was extremely dangerous because they could pour hot water or oil or, or whatever down on you. And so the most common tactic was just to wait them out. This, by the way, is how the city of Vicksburg, Mississippi was taken during the Civil War. They just simply cut off supplies from the river and the railroad and starved the people out. And so it's a very long and, 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 and uh, laborious type of warfare. But God had given to the nation of Israel a different tactic, to be quiet and walk. And they did just that. And, and that, that's the second point I want to make, beginning verse 6, is, is their obedience. Look at verse 6. So Joshua, that is as a result of receiving these instructions in verses 1 through 5, this Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go before the Ark of the Lord. Now what I really want to draw your attention to is the next four words in the beginning of verse 8. And so it was so. And it was so. Those four words. It, it was so. That is, they followed these instructions explicitly. They obeyed these orders to the letter. Now, listen, these orders don't make any sense from a military point of view or from any sort of logical point of view. They simply don't make sense. Yet, they follow them explicitly. Now, why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Now, you remember this generation was born out there in the wilderness. And yet, though they don't remember Egypt, they were told the stories. And maybe they weren't old enough to remember some of the miracles that God did in the wilderness, and some of them were. They knew the stories. They knew the stories of when Moses was called up on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And instead of waiting prayerfully down in their tents, the Scripture says the people rose up to play. And they had a drunken party. And Moses found them frolicking and worshiping a golden calf that Aaron had constructed for them when he came down. They remember the stories of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire before the Lord. That is, they worshipped in a way that God had not prescribed, and God killed them on the spot. They remembered the story of Korah and his relatives who got tired of Moses being their leader and decided they wanted to take over leadership. And God caused the ground to swallow them alive. They remember those times and, and those stories. And so at least at first... At first, as they crossed the Jordan River, they followed the Lord's commands explicitly. That would not last, unfortunately. Now that leads us thirdly to the outburst, verse 15. Verse 15. Then on the seventh day, now remember they did this for six consecutive days. Get up in the morning, priest would lead out, they would blow the seven horns, Next would come the armed soldiers, then the ark of the Lord, then the second wave of armed soldiers, then the people. They'd walk all the way around the city, and then they'd go back to their camp in silence. Did this for six straight days. Verse 15, then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner, that is in silence, seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. So 13 times total. 
And at the seventh time, when the priest blew the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The wait was over, and the end of the wait was signaled with a trumpet's blast, this ram's horn. But you'll note that the horn was not blown by the army. The horn was blown by the priest. Now, why do you think that is? I think it's no coincidence. It's the Lord once again telling them what he's told them all the way through the journey, that the victory was his and not theirs. Now, had they just rushed the walls with uh, battering rams and knocked down the gates, or if they had developed some incredible novel military strategy and taken the city, then who would have received the glory for this military victory? They would have, or Joshua would have. They'd build a statue to Joshua. But instead, God, remember, won't share his glory with others. And so he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk around the city 13 times, and on the last day, on the seventh time that day, you're going to shout when you hear the horn, and the walls are going to fall down, and you're just going to walk right through. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I've told you many times that there are those in the world who steadfastly refuse to believe that anything miraculous happened in the Bible. And so when they come to passages like the Red Sea parting, they have to explain that scientifically. And so they come up with all sorts of crazy theories. When the New Testament, for example, says that Jesus was really dead, and they placed him in the tomb, and then he rose on the third day, they can't accept that because it doesn't make sense scientifically. And so they come up with theories like Jesus was only mostly dead, called the swoon theory, you've heard of it? And that uh, somehow by being laid in that cold, damp tomb, suddenly he was revived to the point he was strong enough to move a boulder by himself and walk out. They would rather believe that than the truth that God did a miracle. So, so let's just cut right to the chase here and tell you what we teach here. What we believe about Joshua 6 is that God did a miracle. It wasn't that, as the liberal theologians say, the reverberations sonically from the sound of the trumpet and the shouting of the people caused the mortar into the walls to crumble and it fell down. That's not what happened. God said, crumble, and they crumbled. He performed a miracle. He did it, and everyone there knew it was God, which was the point. But he did it through means. And I've told you throughout this study of Joshua that God answers prayer through the means, often, of his people. And he uses two elements with his people. One is a trumpet sound, and two is a shout. Now, would you agree that God could have performed this miracle and given this victory in a multitude of ways? Of course he could. But he chose to use this way, that the people's obedience by the blowing of the priest's horn and the shouting of the people. Now, there are others that say, well, the victory here was a psychological one. That when the people marching around the city 13 times so disoriented the people of Jericho that they just gave up, surrendered their weapons. And when the people shouted, it was similar to today's psychological warfare. You've all seen this in a kidnapping scenario or where someone has barricaded themselves in a house. Rather than rushing the house, they'll blast loud speakers with rock music to try to keep them from sleeping in the hopes that they'll just walk out and give up. And they'll say, well, that, that was the miracle there. No, that's not what happened. The walls came tumbling down. The question is, how are we to understand and apply this text correctly 
without making the mistakes that I alluded to in my introduction. That is, of over-allegorizing it or over-emotional emphasis or taking it out of context. Well, fortunately, a number of famous texts in the Old Testament are commented on in the New Testament. And so when the New Testament tells us how to interpret an Old Testament passage, our work is done. <laughs> I had a professor in seminary who majored in Old Testament, and he took his Ph.D. from a Jewish seminary, although he was a Christian. And I took a class, the book of Isaiah, under him. And he caused us to have discussions and to write papers about the meaning of certain clearly messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant passages specifically. And, and when we would talk about this in terms of this re referencing Jesus, he would get upset and say, no, you, you've got to interpret this passage as a Jewish person would without any knowledge of Jesus. And, and I tried to always be respectful to my professors because they certainly know a lot more than a country boy from Mississippi. But I had to respectfully tell him, I cannot pretend I don't know about Jesus. And I cannot pretend that I don't know that the suffering servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the New Testament clearly tells us that He is. And when the New Testament tells us the meaning of an Old Testament passage, our work is done. And so as I was struggling this week to, to, to make application of, of Joshua 6, I, I recalled that there's a reference in the New Testament to Joshua 6. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's turn there. You remember that Hebrews chapter 11 is what many people call the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now there is a famous football player that played a few seasons here in Dallas whose name I will not utter in this holy place. <laughs> who was inducted to the National Football League Hall of Fame this week. And he refused to go to the ceremony. It's been all over the news. You can look it up when you get home. But the Hall of Fame of Faith is in the Bible is Hebrews 11 where the writer of Hebrews lists many of the great heroes of the Old Testament and explains that the common denominator of all of them was their faith, which is really how we are to understand Joshua 6. So let's begin Hebrews eleven seventeen. He goes all the way back to the man that God used to bring all of this about, his eternal redemptive plan, that is to, to bring a Savior into the world through the nation of Israel, that is Abraham. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. And by faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. And by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to that reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. 
And by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. And by faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. And so he goes all the way back through the history of Israel, from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob, and then to Moses, and how the Lord's hand was on them, and how he used the vehicle and the means of faith to bring about salvation. And then he comes to verse 30, and he says this, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they had been encircled for seven days. And so the New Testament tells us, remember, we saw last week that when we read the Old Testament, it's given to us for two reasons. One, it could be a warning of how people disobeyed God and the consequences of that. Don't do this. And then on the other hand, it could be an encouragement to say, do this. Well, this text, Joshua 6, is that one. It's an encouragement for God's people in all epochs of history to obey Him and to obey Him explicitly. That is to live by faith and not by sight. Because God brings about salvation to His people through the means of faith. Isn't that what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Salvation is by grace through what? Faith. Verse 9 says, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Why did God have the men circumcised? Why did he have them walk around in silence instead of coming up with some great strategy so that he would get the glory? Why did God choose the means of the cross and substitutionary atonement to bring about salvation for his people, the church, for the very same reason, so that he would get the glory? Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many wise, not many noble were chosen. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, by the way, that's all of us, to confound the wise so that no one could boast before Him. So that's the reason to show that salvation is by grace through faith. He uses the means of the trumpet and, and the shout. This was a, a shout of victory and authority. Oftentimes in the ancient world when a king was going to make a visit to his constituency, he would send a herald out ahead of him to shout to the villagers, Get ready! The king is on his way. The Lord sent a person to do that very thing before his first incarnation, right? John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord, who shouted out there in the wilderness to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the Lord came behind him. Well, when... The shout came forth from the people. It was an announcement that the wait is over. That authority was now present and victory was imminent. Now I said that we have to be careful about reading too much or try to over-allegorizing Old Testament passages. But there are some things in the New Testament and the Old Testament passage of Joshua 6 that are so similar that they certainly must not be coincidental. I've told you a number of times in recent days that, that our church has been going through a season of grief and loss this spring and early summer that is unprecedented in my life. We have had 20 funerals here in the last three months. The Lord has seen fit in His sovereignty to call home some very dear and precious saints, some that were very close to me. And I have found comfort every time we have a funeral here of one of God's saints in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
It's a very familiar text. I wish you'd turn there with me now. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. And you remember that Paul went out to establish churches through his missionary journeys as recorded in the book of Acts. One of the places that churches were founded was in this place called Thessalonica. And the Thessalonians were wonderful people. They had a wonderful church there, but they did not have, obviously, the full canon of Scripture yet. They didn't have to have a full understanding of eschatology. And so uh, they really didn't have any doctrine about what happens to a person who dies before Jesus returns. And so they, they believed, as we do, that Jesus could come at any moment and they had to live in, in readiness. But what happens to that faithful saint who grows old and sick and, and dies and Jesus hasn't come yet? Is he lost forever? And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this letter. And one of the reasons he writes it is to give them some instruction on that issue. And this is what the scripture says, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, I would not have you be ignorant, brothers, concerning them which are asleep. Now that's just a beautiful euphemism for the death of a Christian. To fall asleep in this life and to wake up in the arms of Christ. That you sorrow not as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, what, say it, shout, with the voice of the archangel and with what? The trump of God. And so you have these same two elements, a shout and a trumpet blast, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with, with these words. We have the same two elements in Joshua 6 as we have here in 1 Thessalonians 4, a trumpet blast and a shout. Now they're in inverted order, I will grant you that. But this is not the only time in the New Testament that we find shouting. In fact, as we were having our family devotions last week, I asked my children if they could think of times in the Bible where people shouted. And one of them said, yeah, when, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey. Do you remember what the people shouted? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now it's ironic, sad really, that just a few hours later they were shouting something very different. Crucify him! But they were shouting. The scripture says there's going to be a trumpet blast one day. In fact, it's referred to as the final trumpet sound. And it will be an announcement that the wait is over. I really think that is the significance of the trumpet in Joshua 6. These people had been waiting for over 40 years. God had been telling them, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to defeat your enemies. I'm going to give you the promised land. They've been hearing it all their life. And then when they finally get there, it's just across the river and there's this flood. And they can't get to it. And they're disappointed. And God says, step out in faith. Put your toe in the water. And when they did, he dried it up and they crossed over. And as they cross over... Then there's another obstacle. Here's this walled city, the city of Jericho, that they can't penetrate. And God says, sit down over there for a few days. And then he says, here's what you do. Walk around the city 
for seven more days. Wait a little longer. Isn't that what you tell your kids when they say they're bored? Are we there yet? Wait a little longer. And so they wait a little longer. And then on the seventh day, after walking around the city seven times, the trumpet blew, and that signaled this, the wait is over. Time to shout. And they shouted, and after they shouted, the walls came crashing down. The scripture says flat. And they didn't have to use a battering ram to go through one of the gates. They just walked through wherever they happened to be at that point around the walls. I think there's a great and wonderful truth here. That when the final trumpet sounds, it will signal the same spiritual truth. The wait is over. The church has been waiting for over 2,000 years for the Lord's second coming. And we've been telling ourselves and each other for 2,000 years, it's soon. It's one day. And I believe it is. I know this. It's one week closer than it was last Sunday. I believe the Lord's second coming is soon. And so we've been waiting and waiting. And some of our best and brightest have grown old or become sick or passed away. And we have the same wonderful truths today that bring comfort to us that just because they're dead doesn't mean they're lost. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But one day, just as sure as the walls fell down in Jericho, another trumpet's going to blast and the wait is going to be over and we are going to be reunited with those that have gone before. Those that have died in Christ are going to receive resurrected bodies. I take it they're reunited with their souls and those that are still living are being caught up together with our new, new bodies fit for heaven. And there we will always be with the Lord. That's worth shouting about, isn't it? That's why it's shouting time. But preceding that, there was silence. I'm reminded of that book of Isaiah I mentioned earlier that I studied in seminary. Isn't there a verse in there that says, All we like sheep have grown astray? Scripture says of that suffering servant that as a lamb to the slaughter, he uttered not a word. See, the Lord entered the city of Jerusalem the first time on the foal of a donk on a donkey, the humblest of animals. He did so quietly. Didn't raise a lot of fuss. The Bible says when he comes again, he's coming on a white charger, a war horse, with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. And this shout from the archangel is going to announce to all the universe that the king is coming. And so here we have it. We have a shout and we have the trumpet sound and the Lord taking possession of what is rightfully his. That's what happened that day. And I know we can get caught up in our PC culture and say, well, they killed everybody. Yes, they did. And that's a brutal thing, but that's what the Lord had them do. And we know the Lord always does what is right. And they shouted because victory was theirs. And friends, when, when uh, the trumpet of God sounds that last time and the archangel shouts, it's a declaration that the wait is over and victory is the Lord. And just as they walked through the walls of the city that were flat on the ground and took possession of what was rightfully theirs, when the Lord comes back, He's going to take possession of what is rightfully His, which is the church and all of us and all of the universe. See, we live in an epoch of history. 
Well, the Bible calls Satan the prince of this world, right? Though, though Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, it looks like Satan's in control. And he is, in a sense, pulling all the strings behind the scenes here. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, his destiny is sure too, isn't it? He's going to be cast into the lake of fire that was prepared for him and his demons. And the Lord Jesus is going to rule and reign forever. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Of things in heaven, I take that to be the angelic realm. Of things on earth, I take that to be the human realm. And things under the earth, I take that to be the demonic realm. That Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. And that will be announced through a trumpet blast and a shout from heaven. Let's thank the Lord for that truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are encouraged this morning, I am, to be reminded that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you don't need our strategy and you don't need our ingenuity. In fact, Father, those are the very things that we often trust in rather than you. They are obstacles to revival rather than the means of them often. So Father, I pray that we would wait on you to seek your face and to follow your instructions explicitly when you give them. Help us to be obedient in every regard. Lord, we know it's through the means of faith that you accomplish salvation yesterday, today, and forever. You don't need our strength. You don't need our strategy. You don't need our cunning. So Father, help us to, to wait on you. Father, I thank you that uh, one day soon, we believe, the final trumpet will sound and a shout from heaven will announce the coming King and you will indeed take possession of your church. And we say with the saints of old, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.